Will you pray with me? Oh, blessed Lord, sovereign God, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, the Waymaker, oh God, now as we come to worship you and the preaching of the word of God. I pray that you would open ears, remove distractions, O oh God, and especially help this weak, rather pathetic preacher. Father, I thank you for the song we sang. Jesus is the center of it all. That's our desire today. It's not to go off on to this theology and that theology. It's about to look at Jesus. As Paul said, when I came, I did not come with wisdom or excellent speech proclaiming the testimonies of God, but I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Exalt Christ today. Exalt Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we turn to our texts, I'd like to say a few words just to prepare our hearts for what the Lord has for us today. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's in a, he's giving a list of different commands that in disobedience to them, we would quench the Holy Spirit the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in a sense we would put out his work, put out his influence, his sanctifying influence among us, conforming us to the image of Christ. And when those commands, he says, do not despise prophecy. Now prophecy being what's according to the word of God, this is the word of prophecy. The writer of Hebrews tells us, God in times past, spoke to the fathers by the prophets in these last days, which we are in. He has spoken to us by his son. All of scripture points to Jesus Christ. So when Paul is telling us, when someone brings to you a teaching of the word of God, we're not to despise that. But do we just receive every teaching? No, he follows that up and says, but test all things and hold fast to what is good. If I can be honest with you, that's a struggle of mine. Something I constantly fight with. I can see what Paul talks about when he says knowledge puffs up. Because it's very easily for me to hear a teaching of the word of God that contradicts what I believe. And immediately on hearing that teaching, 
these walls of arguments start, start popping up in my head as though I'm right, as though I can't be wrong. And therefore, I don't hear anything he says. So that's something I personally have to struggle with. Now, why do I start that way? That's, that's because today the Lord would have us deal with a passage that many of you may disagree with. Now, we must o- agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if anyone preaches any other gospel than what you have received, let him be a curse. I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. We must agree on the gospel. But there are secondary issues that we may not agree with one another. But as Paul says, a servant of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome. We're not to argue and debate over these things. We are to remember this. Everything must point to Christ. Now, the reason many of you may disagree with some of the things I'm going to say is because of there's a theology didn't exist for 1,800 years in church history, but in the last 200 years, it has popped up. And the last 100 years, is, it's become very popular, a very popular way of not only seeing certain parts of Scripture, it actually influences your whole view of how you read the Scriptures. And I'm sure everyone in here if you may not hold to it, but you've been influenced by it, if you're asking, what is this? I don't like getting into all these theological terms, but it is a dispensational theology. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But just for the ones that do. Now, our elders, um, Jeff and Sean, of course, they're not here today. We've had our discussions, not just recently, over the past year. They wouldn't disagree, but I know there are many that do disagree. But I want to encourage you, don't, don't fall to the same sin I often fall to. And because of some minor disagreement, you throw out the baby with the bathwater, as it were. And arguments start popping up in your head, and you don't receive what the Lord has for you. So I just beg you, just, if you don't agree, just bear with the message. I have two goals here. One is for my brethren out there. I want you to grow in your appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And therefore, you lay down your life in service to him, even if that means giving up your life. My other goal is for those who are in rebellion against Christ, who are in allegiance with the devil, that you would fear the judgment that is to come. And you would flee to Christ. So with that being said, the title of my message is The Millennium, an Exhortation, and a Warning. So if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 20.
Revelation, of course, the last book in your Bible, probably the most hotly debated book. Revelation chapter 20. A few years ago, probably five or so years ago now, um, I watched a shepherd's conference, uh, of course, grace to you, John MacArthur's church. Uh, he invited Vody Bauckham to speak. One of Vody Bauckham's messages, which, by the way, they have two completely different uh, views of the passage he dealt with. He dealt with the passage in Revelation 7. Vody Bauckham preached on it from his view, which is also what I hold to. And knowing that John MacArthur completely disagreed with it, yet Vody Bauckham is back every single year. Now, I can't go into John MacArthur's heart, but I've heard stories of how particular he is about who preaches. So what I think what went on is because of the maturity of these men, he can say, okay, I disagree with that, but that was a biblical teaching. That's what the Word of God teaches. So I just beg you, brethren, let's be mature. Let's look past all of the secondary issues that we disagree with. And let's look to what the Bible teaches, what Jesus has to say to us. So Revelation chapter 20, just um, for those of you who may have questions, okay, the book of Revelation, okay, can I understand this book? What, is this book relevant to me? Is it to be taken literally, symbolically, but I don't know how to approach this book. Well, in chapter 1, we don't have time to go there. But John gives us some keys to interpreting this book. I'll just run through them really quickly. If any of you are interested in my notes, I'll be more than happy to give them to you. I typically don't like notes, but I want to be, make sure today I'm precise with the scriptures I give and the references. So, with that being said, here are seven keys from chapter 1 on the book of Revelation. First of all, the book of Revelation is an understandable book. It's meant to be understood. It's not meant to be some mystery that we can't understand. Second of all, the book of Revelation is a Christological book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation is about. It's not about beasts. It's not about dragons. It's not about horsemen. It's not about any of those things. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, all of the Bible, it points to me. He says, you search the scriptures. You think in them you have eternal life. These are those that testify about me. Come to me. It's about Jesus Christ. Third, Revelation is a picture book. Okay, it's, it's a book similar to the last half of Daniel, Visions. The first half of Zechariah, visions. We see this in Ezekiel, visions. And that's what we get in the book of Revelation. It's not an epistle where we dissect word by word, but it's giving vision, word pictures. Fourth, Revelation is an urgent book. It's a book, it's not a book that just gives some future scenario that has nothing to do with us. It's to produce urgency in the life of the Christian. Fifth, Revelation is a symbolic book. 
Okay, John tells us the word he used is actually semino, which means to indicate using symbols. For an example, this word is used when Jesus Christ says, and when I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. And it says, this he said, signifying, same word, what type of death he would die. So he's using a symbol, lifted up. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about the cross. And that's the book of Revelation. Six, Revelation is a re relevant book. There's a blessing, actually seven Beatitudes. Just like we see with Jesus, blessed is he, blessed is he, so on and so forth. Just like every other Beatitude in the Bible is relevant to us, the Beatitudes of Revelation are relevant to us. And lastly, Revelation is a pur purposeful book. There is a purpose to this book. John says, I'm your brother and companion in the tribulation." John is coming alongside his brethren. So often we look at scripture through our 21st century lens, not realizing there's a historical context. John is coming to his brethren who are in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ saying, I'm coming alongside you to encourage you, to comfort you. And that's what this book is about. But with that little Foundation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. So first of all, let's read verses 1 through 3. The, the title of this section I titled, The Millennium Satan is Bound, Jesus Christ Has Bound Him. Satan is Bound. And Jesus Christ has bound him. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of that dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So first of all, we're immediately confronted with symbolic, symbolism in this chapter. So first we see a key. What's, what's the key mean? The key is a symbol for authority. Revelation 1.18 this Jesus, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Matthew 16, 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the key is a symbol of authority. We have authority through the preaching of the gospel to bind and to loose. The key is a symbol for authority. What about the bottomless pit? 
well. As we see in Revelation 9, 1, 9, 2, 9, 11, 11, 7, 17, 8 as well. And in this passage, it's always a place of Satan and his forces. Why is the term the bottomless pit? Well, Scripture isn't real clear about this. But if you think Revelation, like I said, is a symbolic book. A bottomless pit. What happens if someone's thrown there? They're, they're falling and they continue to fall. Satan, as we will see, okay, he's fallen. He's cast out. So he's in a continual state of falling, you can say, until, as we see, he's released and he regains his footing for a little while. But like I said, test all things, hold fast to what is true. The great chain. The great chain is a symbol of, uh, instrument of binding. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Jude 1, 6, speaking of the same thing. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then we see the dragon. Now, he helps us out here. He gives us a description of the dragon. But I want to look into that description. The dragon, he says, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan. That tells us a few things about Satan. So first of all, he's a dragon. A dragon is a ferocious predator. That's the description the Holy Spirit has given to Satan. It is wise to have a healthy fear of Satan. Even Michael the archangel had a healthy fear of Satan. You can read that in the book of Jude. So, as a dragon, how, how does he prey on us? How does he? And that's what we see here. First, he says he's that serpent of old. This goes all the way back to Genesis. The serpent was... The serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. And he said to Eve, has God said from the beginning? So what does this description of Satan as a serpent, what does this mean? Well, he preys on us through his lies and deception. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Said Corinthians 11.3, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Said Corinthians 11.13 and 14, For such a false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. No wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, by the way. It's according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, 
because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 1 Timothy 2.14 And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And finally, 1 Peter 5a Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You might be like, what's, what's that last one have to do with anything? Well, a roaring lion, when it's seeking someone to devour, is it roaring? No. It's hidden. It's in the brush. And when you least expect it, that's when the lion pounces on you. That's how Satan is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's crafty. He's subtle. He's sneaky. And he preys upon us, the people of God. That's why we need to be in the word of God. Where we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. So we see the devil's described as that serpent, that liar, that deceiver, but also it says that he's the devil. The devil is not just a name. It's actually a title. It means something. The devil, it means a slanderer, an accuser. So the devil... He prays not only through lies and deception, but through his slander, through his accusation. He's called the accuser of the brethren. First Timothy three eleven, first or second Timothy three three, and Titus two three. And all three of these scriptures, this word devil is actually used about human beings. First first Timothy three eleven. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, literally, not devils. 2 Timothy 3.3 People will be unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, devils. Titus 2.3 The older women likewise, they must be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, devils. But also, Satan prays on us as an adversary of all of God's purposes. If you're about the purposes of God, Satan is your adversary. He's against you. Mark 4, 15. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word was sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's at the preaching of the word. That's going on in this building this morning and all over the nation and over the world. As the word of God is preached, Satan... And his forces are there to snatch up the word that you might not be saved. Mark 8, 33. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Luke 22, 3 and 4. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains, how they might, or how he might betray them. Satan is a liar. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is a slanderer. He is an accuser. Satan is the adversary of all the purposes of God. That's our enemy. But, like I said, we should, yes, have a healthy fear of him, but should we be in dread 
about him? Lord willing, I pray that we'll get the answer to that in this sermon. But then we see the thousand years again. Don't have to agree with me. That's, I care very little whether this is your view of this or not. But I pray that, again, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Well, in the book of Revelation, being that it is a symbolic book, and we see in Revelation 2, 10, that 10, the number 10, is actually used just representing a period of time. Revelation 2, 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation Ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we have ten. What's a thousand? Ten times ten times ten. This is a huge period of time. So, with that out of the way, how are we to understand the binding of Satan here? Is Satan really bound? I mean, all of the habit. Everything going on in the world. You're telling me Satan is bound. How am I to understand that? Well, what does the Bible, what does Jesus have to say about it? Well, first of all, we see here in verse 3 that this binding has a specific purpose. It says, so that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished. There's a specific purpose for this binding. So you're like, okay, so you're telling me Satan can't deceive the nations? Then we just finished talking about Satan is a deceiver. So if he's bound where he can't deceive, why are people being deceived by Satan? Well, this, again, That he can deceive the nation. See, at one time, for hundreds of years, the gospel only came to the Jews. The revelation of God only to the Jews. And every nation outside of them, all the Gentile nations, including everyone in here, we were under the deception of Satan. But when Christ came, Satan was bound. And now, He can no longer deceive all the nations. And that's why you are here this morning. That's why I am here this morning. But let's see what the New Testament has said about this truth. Well, first of all, Satan is bound. Matthew 12, 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Satan is cast out, John 12, 31, 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Third, Satan is disarmed. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them 
and then Satan is destroyed. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Satan is Christ. This truth has been taught from the beginning. Genesis 3, 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head. And you shall crush his heel. Satan is bound. Satan is cast out. Satan is disarmed. You're like, how is he disarmed? Well, we see he's disarmed because Christ provided the forgiveness of sins. Satan has one damning weapon. That's to accuse you of unforgiving sin. That's been taken out of his hands. He's disarmed. Satan is destroyed. The reason any of us in here no longer walk in sin is because the power of Satan has been destroyed and we have been delivered over to the kingdom of God, to the power of God. He's destroyed. He's crushed. Now you're like, if this is true, that's good news for me. Yes. So what should we do? Well, remember, Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. He's been cast out. Satan no longer has authority. And what does Jesus Christ say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What are we to do? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them all things I've commanded you, and I will be with you. Until the end of the age. Saints. Satan is bound. He's crushed, disarmed, destroyed, cast out. So let's lay down our lives in service to Christ. For his kingdom. Let us say with Paul. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. How's it gain? If I die, I depart and be with Christ. Let's lay down our lives. For him. So, Jesus Christ on that cross. It isn't just some small thing he did. Oh, Jesus Christ died. My sins can be forgiven. Now I go on living my life. I have my ticket to heaven. No. He died. And he crushed. He crushed that serpent's head. So let's get out there. Let's make disciples. Let's make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you have to go out to South Lake Town Square and preach the gospel. No. You make disciples in your own house. You know, your own children should be your first ministry. Your wife, your husband, your cousins, in-laws. Your people at the place of work, wherever God has put you, let's be diligent there. Let's make disciples. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was sent back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it was a very wise strategy. He gave everyone the responsibility only of building on the wall next to his dwelling place. 
That's our responsibility. You may not go overseas. You may. You may not go out, preach on the street, but build on the wall. Make disciples next to where you dwell. That's our responsibility. And we can have great encouragement because Satan is bound, is cast out, disarmed, destroyed, and he is crushed. But you're like, but he can still kill me, right? Yes, he can. Shall we fear? Second point. In exhortation, saints will rule. Jesus Christ reigns with them. Let's look at verse 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and have not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, that lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years years. You know, back up to verse 3, we see, he says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. So, what are these things that he's talking to? I mean, wouldn't it make sense if he's saying a thousand years? Why didn't he say after the thousand years, he will be released? Why didn't he say after that, he will be released? Why did he say these things? What are these things that will happen? Well, we'll look at it in a second. But these things are Christians that die, that are martyred for their faith. And their souls go to rule and reign with Christ. Now again, you don't have to agree. But please, bear with me, test all things, hold fast to what is good. So let's look at this more in detail. So who is this group that's being spoken of here? Then I saw souls of those who have been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and the word of God. Who are these people? Well, the, they would seem to be the souls of martyred saints in heaven. So we, we know they aren't living because we see in Revelation 20 verse 5, it says, but the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead, so they're dead as well. The rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished, which Lord willing will see at the end of this chapter. So it seems to be that when a believer is martyred, remember what Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though we die, he shall live. That's what we see here. So, this same group is actually portrayed in John's second vision. In the book of Revelation, thank you. In the book of Revelation, we have what, it's a big word, 
It's called recapitulation. It's where we get recap from. And these visions, they recap things over and over. In John's second vision, we actually see this same group and listen to the language. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, listen, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. The exact same language. The souls of those who have been martyred for the witness to Jesus Christ. So, that's what it would seem that this group is. So, you say, well, I don't see that here. Okay, is that what scripture teaches? Well, as I quoted before, in Philippians, what does Paul say? says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I remain in the flesh and the body, I'll be fruit for my labor. What shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far greater. He's like, look, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to make disciples. I'm here for your progress and your joy and the faith. And if you kill me, I'll depart and be with Christ. It's far greater. What about Second uh, Corinthians 5.8? He says, look. I am well pleased, rather, to be departed from this body and to be in the presence of Christ. So rather you see that here or not, that is what the scripture teaches. Now, probably one of the most controversial parts other than the thousand years about this. What is this mark? To be honest, I'm tempted to just skip over this part, but I must be faithful to the word of God. Again, if you don't agree with me, that is fine. I am wrong. I have been wrong. I will be wrong again. I have so much sin, I don't even know. Where I I think I'm right, I can guarantee you, in every one of those areas, I am wrong in some way. But, according to the revelation given me, so it seems that this mark is something more than a physical mark. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, this word for mark is used one time outside the book of Revelation, and I believe it gives us a foundation of how this is used. It's used in Acts 17.29. He says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Listen, something shaped, that same word, marked by the art in man's own devising. So, Paul is not saying when a man makes an idol, he puts a stamp on there so you can know who did it. No, he's saying, look at this idol. It is obvious that man has crafted this. It's an obvious mark of identification. There's a real sense this whole world is marked by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky declares his handiwork. Paul tells us, He says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. You hear that clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. 
How can you see his invisible attributes? We can see his mark everywhere. The whole world is full of the glory of God. This whole world is marked by God. So that would seem to be the use of this word mark. Now, in the other seven times we see the mark in the book of Revelation, we learn at least three things from this. First of all, the mark is always identified with worship and is on the forehead and on the hand. Now again, when we read this, we very often look with a 21st century mindset. But how would John's readers have heard this? Well, remember, they have a mind steeped in the Old Testament, much more than ours. What does the Old Testament say? Exodus 13, 9. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 6, 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Deuteronomy 11, 8. Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, which that's a Hebrew, a Hebrew way of describing the forehead, and many of your translations pick up on that and just say forehead. So, when they hear this, they hear this, through the lens of the Old Testament, which John constantly is going back to the Old Testament as our brother Glenn could definitely bear witness to that. So first of all, it's identified with worship on the forehead and on the hand. Second of all, everyone who receives this mark goes to hell. Everyone. There's not one person that receives this mark that does not Go to hell. So, that would make this a gospel issue. Now, if we are to test all things and hold fast to what is good, we can only test it by the word of God. Does the word of God say anything else about the gospel and the mark? Indeed it does. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Circumcision, of course, back way back in Genesis 17, Abraham was given this covenant that the males were to receive this mark and remove the foreskin from the male reproductive organ to mark them as the people of God. But Paul tells us when it comes to the gospel, no, that's circumcision isn't what matters. That's actually a distortion of the gospel. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus neither is circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So, if everyone who receives this mark goes to hell and we go to hell not because of some physical thing but because we either keep the commandments of God or not, or are new creations or not. I don't know if we can come to that conclusion. Now, again, if you think it's a physical mark, 
You can think. So, one more thing we see in these other uses of the mark is the mark identifies the person with a kingdom. Often we hear the mark of the beast. We're like, oh, it's a person, the Antichrist, right? Well, what does scripture say about the beast? There's only one way to interpret the beast according to scripture. Daniel 7.23 Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it into pieces. So this mark doesn't identify you with a person, a certain ruler. It identifies you with a kingdom. Now that Antichrist indeed does arise from that kingdom, we continue. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first, and if we go on, we see that's the Antichrist. Yes, he arises from this kingdom, but the mark doesn't identify you with him. It identifies you with a kingdom, which we see has many kings. So who is the king of this kingdom? Well, if we look back at Revelation chapter 13, when it begins speaking of the beast, it says the dragon gave him power, his throne, and great authority. Who is the king of this kingdom? Satan. Satan is the king of this kingdom. So this mark identifies you with the kingdom of Satan, is what it seems to be. Okay, so with these in mind, it seems that the, the mark are thoughts and deeds that identify with the kingdom of Satan. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, of which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, there's the dragon, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves, and the lust of our flesh. Now listen to how it describes the lust of your flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the bodies, the back of the hand, and of the mind, the forehead. So it would seem that this mark is an identif identification with Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Now, you think it's a physical mark? Okay. But we must realize this is what the Word of God says. If you don't agree that's what Revelation 20 says, that's completely fine. But we must realize that we need to be concerned about something more than something on the outside. Because, again, Satan is a deceiver. Which brings us to another point that I have a hard time receiving this or believing that it's a physical mark because we looked at the character of Satan. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Now, Satan is much wiser than me. Actually, in Ezekiel, we're told, God says, you were the perfection of wisdom. Now, when Satan fell, he didn't lose his wisdom. It just got perverted. So he's probably the most wise being under God. Only it's all twisted. Now, if you were to be deceptive, 
If you're a liar and a deceiver, and you know the Word of God says this, and you're like, okay, now these people are going to be looking for some mark on the forehead and on the hand. So I'm going to create something in culture that will look exactly like that. And they'll be so concerned about that all the while. Their thinking and their doing is just going along with the course of this world. Going along with the prince of the power of the air. And it's almost as if they, on the day of judgment they can say, Lord, Lord, we didn't receive the mark. Yet I, I know I, I couldn't buy, I couldn't sell, but we didn't receive it. And he's like, okay. But your thinking and your doings were marked by saying this whole time. Depart from me. That would seem to accord with the workings of Satan. It's a lie. He's a deceiver. So, what are they doing? We see the reigning with Christ. Should be a great encouragement for us. You know, so often we might think of heaven. Okay, if we die, we, we go to heaven. Our spirits are just floating around there, right? Like the writer of Hebrews says, the spirits of just men made perfect. What are they doing? They're just floating around, waiting for the resurrection of the body? Is, is, is that what happens when we die? If we get killed for preaching the gospel, is that what happens and we just have to wait? No. The ruling and reigning with Christ. So even if the bound, cast out, disarmed, destroyed, and crushed Satan, even if he kills us, which he may do, Jesus tells the disciples, he's like, the time is coming when people will kill you. They think they are for God's service. He tells them, don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of this world, the world hates you. But the servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. So if we identify with Christ, if we're out there like Christ, making disciples of Christ, this world they're going to hate you. They might kill you. But what happens when they do? They actually bless you. Did you see that in verse 5? Look verse 5 again. Oh, excuse me, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but... They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Do you know the worst Satan can do to you is bless you? Do you realize that? Can we not lay down our lives for Christ? Can we not lay down our lives in service to him? Brethren, we have a great hope. The worst this world can do to us is bless us. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So third point. The dead will rise. Jesus Christ will judge them. So we've seen that in this millennium, we have seen 
that Satan is bound. Jesus Christ has bound him. We have seen that the saints will reign. Jesus Christ reigns with them. And now the dead will rise. Jesus Christ will judge them. I already mentioned the rest of the dead. Who are they? Well, we get a picture of them here. Starting in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea that went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Just a few comments about those verses. So, there's a time that Satan will be released. He's released to deceive the nations once again. To come against the people of God. But they're destroyed. If you are in rebellion against Christ, you might be like, you know what? That gospel that lose my life for the sake of Christ, that isn't for me. If you are rebellion against Christ, he will reign to his enemies or make his footstool. And if that's you, you will be destroyed. And everyone who, as we looked at, is in allegiance with Satan. Allegiance with Satan. And rebellion, and like we see here, it's shown because they hate the people of God. Everyone, and that includes you if you're in this room this morning, if you're in rebellion against Christ, you'll be destroyed. So, who are the rest of the dead? Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, so here's the rest of the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what about those enemies of Jesus Christ? Those enemies who are in rebellion against him. What about them when they die? If the saints die and their souls go to rule and reign with Christ, what about the rest of the dead? Well, they rise to judgment. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 5. It's like, don't marvel at this. The time is coming. When all those who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God. 
and they will live. Some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of condemnation. That's what we see here. So, four things about this judgment. I don't have much time, so we'll let scripture speak. Y'all need to hear me anyway. First of all, this judgment is inescapable. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, listen, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. No one escapes this judgment. You live in rebellion against Jesus Christ, and you will not escape. You know, if a, a criminal is convicted, he can die on the way to judgment, and he escapes judgment. Your death will not escape, will not get you an escape from this judgment. All of heaven and earth, they try to flee away. They try to run and hide. But no place is found for them. You can't escape this judgment. Second, this judgment is impartial. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. Notice that. He said, I saw the dead, small and great. Listen. Small and great. You will not escape this judgment. You will stand before God. Children, that includes you in here as well. Rich or poor, doesn't matter what class you're in. You will stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. And as we see, you can escape. Death will not help you. Death actually gets you into this judgment. So what's this book? Well, we said, you know, Revelation uses symbols from the Old Testament. What do we see in the Old Testament? Psalm 139, 16. This David, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. Yet the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. He says in this passage, your, your knowledge is too wonderful for me. So what these books represent, are we going to stand before Jesus in this massive library with, with books on every thought, every deed, every intention, every motivation, everyone, the hundreds and billions of people on the earth? No. But we will stand before one who has a mind that doesn't forget anything and he sees everything. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He misses nothing. And the enemies of God will be judged by all of the wolves. All of them. And when every thought and intent of their heart is only wicked and evil continually, they'll be judged by a lie. That's why there's only hope in Christ. Jesus Christ 
is the only one who, as we have seen, disarms Satan by forgiving sin. He's our only hope. Flee to Christ. If you have not, flee to Christ. Your righteousness, the best thing you can do is filthy rags before God. Flee to Christ. But not only is this judgment inescapable and impartial, but this judgment is according to your words, which we already have seen. He reiterates. And when things are repeated in Scripture, that's for emphasis. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they will judge each one according to his works. Notice the language. It could just say they will judge according to the works. No, they will judge each one according to his works. If you die without Christ and you stand before him in judgment, you will be singled out. Children, mommy and daddy aren't going to be there to plead your case. Your wife isn't going to be there. Your husband isn't going to be there. You will be singled out and you will stand before Jesus Christ, the one you rejected, and you will be judged. Lastly, this judgment is final. Verse 14, 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's final. It's no court of appeals. It's nowhere you can go. Once he makes that judgment. As we saw back in 14, you will drink of the wine cup of the wrath of the Almighty God poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And you will be tormented in flames in the presence of the Lamb. You won't escape Jesus. He is the one who treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. You will be in the presence of the Lamb and the holy angels. And the smoke of your torment will ascend forever and ever. There'll be no rest for you, day or night. This judgment is final. So what's our hope? Each and every one of us in here is a sinner. I've committed more sin in this sermon than I can even count. What's my hope? Is this, this sermon going to get me to heaven? I say, Lord, Lord, did you not hear what I preached? This sermon will condemn me to 10 billion hells. What's our only hope? It's Christ. The name found in the book of life. Book, again, a symbol for its knowledge. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Our only hope is Christ. We don't get life from a book. We get life from a person. He is the way, the truth, and the life to Christ. So I beg you, if you have not fled to Jesus Christ, 
again, small or great, young or old, if you have not fled to Christ, do so this morning. Do so this morning. Because Satan is bound. Jesus Christ has bound him. The saints will reign. Jesus Christ reigns with him. And the dead will rise. And Jesus Christ will judge me. Father God, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the book of Revelation. Though there are so many speculations and could it be this, could it be that, there is a clear message. And it all points to it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray that Christ was magnified this morning. Although I know I utterly failed. Who can preach Christ but himself? I just pray that you use the weakness of this presentation of a few words. You would strengthen the saints. They would grow in appreciation for what Christ has done on the cross in crushing Satan. And they would lay down their lives in service to him. And for any in here that are in rebellion against Christ, that are in allegiance with Satan, that they would fear the judgment to come and they would flee to Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.